I think we're the only one when we sit down and ask ourselves a strategic question, the first consideration is what would the employer want? And, and it's like, come on, Mike, that's not a differentiator. I mean, that's so obvious that that can't be something unique. But because the incentives are so screwed up, it is a differentiator. We truly are one of the few, if only, company that makes decisions based on an outcome of the employer. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Michael Schroeder. Mike has served as the founder and president of Roundstone since 2003, when they launched the first group medical captive of its kind and have since revolutionized the entire self-insurance industry. Roundstone's captive approach to insurance allows small and medium-sized businesses to take advantage of the benefits of self-funded insurance that historically only larger enterprises could take advantage of, such as plan flexibility and control, transparency, and cost savings. By banding smaller companies together in a shared risk community, those companies become protected from the volatility and can be rewarded with extra savings. In practice, since its inception, Roundstone has distributed over $72 million back to its captive participants, money which, in contrast to the fully insured model, would be pocketed by the insurance carriers instead. This idea, which began with an entrepreneurial vision of creating a better life for his family and for his employees, has since evolved under Mike's leadership into a thriving 140-person company with more than 700 employers participating in Roundstone's group medical captive, saving participating companies 20% on average relative to their traditional insurance plans. With more than 25 years of management experience and recognized by Ernst & Young as a finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year in 2022, Mike has a proven track record of growing Roundstone with a 30% compounded annual growth rate over the last two decades, which has earned Roundstone recognition as one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. 5000 for five consecutive years, as well as a Northeast Ohio top workplace all while remaining a fully independent and family-owned organization. In our conversation today, we explore how Mike's experience as a practicing attorney and property and casualty insurance expert inspired his application of self-funding and captives to employer health insurance. We talk about what captives and self-funding even are and how they compare to traditional and fully insured coverage. We unpack the biggest challenges in the employer healthcare system today and how misaligned incentives encumber attempts to solve those very challenges. And importantly, how Roundstone is trying to explicitly align those incentives. This truly was an amazing and wide-ranging discussion. Mike is a formidable builder and leader and has built an inspiring organization with Roundstone based here in Lakewood, Ohio. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Mike Schroeder after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. 
I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. So over the last few weeks, I have been talking to everyone I know about medical captives. And when I first learned about them through my interactions with you, <laughs> mind virus probably is not the right word given the, the negative connotations of virus. However, it does feel like that because once you know about medical captives, it is very hard to unsee them and not think about them. And the idea itself seems to spread pretty organically, especially knowing how flawed the traditional full insurance alternative is for so many companies. But what I realized is that for the, the average person, and I would wager the, the majority of people, very few of them know what medical captives are in this context. And so I might go on to explain what they are and that there is this incredibly innovative company here in Cleveland called Roundstone, which has evangelized this group medical captive concept from inception to mass scale adoption over the last 20 years, saving companies many millions of dollars in the process and addressing some of the most severe structural underlying problems of our healthcare system, all while building an impressive business around it. And from there, everyone would like to understand more. So all that is to say, <laughs> I have been very much looking forward to having you on the podcast because I know you have an incredible story to tell here and will be a significantly better steward of Roundstone's vision and mission than I can be. To have the most productive conversation here, knowing most people are not experts in the world of group medical captives and self-insurance, I think we will need to do some stage setting and definition of terms, which also will let us explore what the world of insurance looked like before Roundstone and some of the primary problems that you experienced which inspired you to start all of this in the first place. So to start though, what is the simplest way you would describe Roundstone? You know, very broadly and generally, we're, we're a health insurance company. Uh, we underwrite employer group health insurance, and we do so throughout the United States. And what would you say are the biggest challenges facing employers that Roundstone works with today? Yeah, so employers today, and particularly the, the middle market, are really confronting escalating costs. I mean, that's the biggest challenge is the, the price that they're paying to provide their employees with health benefits is rising dramatically. And, and what I mean by that, like putting that in context, their costs are going up by 20% a year in some cases, in some cases more. And so they're really in a difficult place because in the employment market, they have to recruit and retain the best employees, that's getting more challenging with full employment today. And then they've got, they have to provide attractive benefits or else they're going to be differentiated from other employers. And yet those benefits are costing more. So they're, they're really looking for ways to better manage their, their benefits spend. 
And, and you know, what's even adds to the frustration is the vast majority of the middle market, two thirds, is in a product, a fully insured employer health plan they buy from a traditional insurance company where very little information about what's driving the cost is provided. And so that adds to the frustration of the predicament they're in. So when we think about the, the landscape that, that Roundstone is, is operating in today, and some of these terms that, that folks may be somewhat less familiar with, can you just lay out for us, you know, what is self-funding? What does it mean to be fully insured? What are captives? And, you know, layering on top of that, Roundstone in the context of, of these ideas and the consortium of, of players that are, that are involved. Sounds good. Um, you know, when you think about health insurance, people in our country access health insurance in a couple different ways. One is through the government and the government programs like Medicare and Medicaid. We're not in that space. Another is through individual coverage where they buy a policy of health insurance for themselves only or their family only. And then the third, which is the vast majority of folks uh, in this country, they access health insurance through their employer. That's called employer group coverage. And the employers deliver that health insurance in really two ways. One is they buy it in what's called fully insured coverage from an insurance company. They pay a premium, and that company takes on the obligation of providing the health benefits to the employees and their family members. Another way that employers buy or provide health benefits to their employees is known as self-funding. And in that approach, the employer is responsible for delivering the health benefits to the employees, but they, do, they don't do so themselves. They, they go out and they engage a, a claims administrator or what's called a third-party administrator, a TPA. They engage a network of caregivers or providers. They engage coverage from what's known as stop-loss insurance for claims that are, are very large, and, and they self-fund. Interesting enough, large companies almost exclusively self-fund. If you have more than 1,000 employees, 99% of the time you're going to be self-fund. And you might say, well, why don't those companies buy fully insured coverage? And the reason is self-funding they recognize is more efficient. Uh, you, you gain access to more data. You gain access to more control. And when you don't spend, you know, you have an influence on it with that control, you have cost savings and you keep that savings. It doesn't stay with the insurance company. So along comes Roundstone and we come up with an idea that what if we could take a lot of these smaller middle market companies, 25 employees to 1,000, and turn them into a larger Fortune 500 company so that they could self-fund too? and overcome some of the reasons that they have historically not self-funded. If everybody recognizes self-funding is a better mousetrap, why is the middle market not doing it? And it's because historically it was too volatile. Year over year claims would move around too much. The cost of stop loss insurance would move up and down too much. It maybe was a little complicated to find the right TPA or, or uh, network and so on and so forth. So. Roundstone said, let's, let's enter the employer market. Let's provide a self-funding solution. Let's do so for the middle market. And let's overcome those historical objections that they've had so that they can access what everybody knows is the most efficient way to fund your health benefits. And that's how Roundstone came about. 
now the quote secret sauce or the innovation that allowed us to do this was this entity known as a captive, which you know is a rough name, but a captive <laughs> is an insurance company that's owned by its insureds, by its members. And it acts as a reinsurance company to the stop loss insurer. But what it really does here is it smooths out that volatility for the employer and allows that employer with only 100 employees, as an example, to self-fund, gain access to their data, gain control. So it's a, I like to refer to it almost like a bumper on a car. The captive kind of makes things a little easier year over year for that middle market employer. And now they're comfortable self-funding. So how is it that, and what kind of space were you operating in that allowed you to understand that this was a problem that you could solve? Again, knowing that a lot of people aren't even necessarily aware of these, these alternative ways of, of, of doing insurance. Yeah, so I've been in insurance my whole career, and the first part of it was property and casualty. And I've always kind of found myself in self-insurance strategies, whether that was self-insured workers' compensation pools or group captives in medical malpractice or group captives in auto liability exposures. So from that experience, I knew the value that a group or a shared risk pool of employers could provide. It could provide some stability, some insight into uh, claim trends, and it also could you know, reduce costs and reduce volatility. So I knew that worked on the PNC side and thought, hey, it might work on the health insurance side. Now, when I first developed the product, the marketplace was not in as much pain as it is today. The, the costs today are going up dramatically, double digits for most employers on their health insurance costs. But when this first product was first launched back in 05, that, that environment wasn't quite there. And so it was a it was a better mousetrap than what they were doing, but they didn't have the pain to cause them to really look at it. And I would joke that for the first, you know, six years of our business, I was a street corner evangelist. And I would say how great this approach was. But until healthcare reform came along and caused people to look for better ways, alternatives to traditional fixed cost health insurance, and before the cost started skyrocketing, it was just a neat idea. But now it really has become for the middle market a better alternative to what they had traditionally have done. And just practically, how do you think about those benefits and communicate them to, to folks who might be considering it or have been part of the captive? Yeah, it really falls into three areas, all of which are made possible by that risk pooling of the captive. And that is we provide you with information. You have the data now to know what's driving your costs. We provide you with control to do something about those costs. And we, you know, we work with you to, we don't force you to do it, but we give you solutions that you can bring to bear and, and to offer to your employee population. And then lastly, when, when you do not spend the money, when, when you don't spend the, the dollars that uh, you funded, uh, you keep those savings. And so year over year, when you're keeping the money in the pocket and the insurance company is not taking it, you reduce your volatility. And, uh, you know, over the long term, you will come out better because you're keeping the savings. 
Now, all three of those ideas are traditional self-funding ideas, and that's what the large companies recognize. But they're only accessible if that middle market can eliminate the year-over-year volatility and have some control that I know that I'm going to have a maximum cost this year of this much. I know that I'm participating in this risk pool that will send profits back to me, even when I have a bad year myself. And so we kind of are the, the platform or we open the door of self-funding to the middle market by use of this captive pooling mechanism we have. Got it. So to, to say it back, just to make sure I'm understanding it, right? If be, when you have a, a large enough pool, you're able to think about insurance as a problem with enough actuarial you know, certainty to understand the risks involved and manage that for yourself. And traditionally, for smaller companies, they haven't had, because they just don't have enough people employed, the ability to, to understand that, that predictability, that, that predictive nature to, to what their risk looks like. Is that... Is that yeah, you, you said it very well. When, when you self-insure as a smaller company, it's not predictable. Uh, when you self-insure as a larger pool or group of employees, it becomes predictable. And so that volatility is removed. So over the last 20 years, evangelizing, you know, group medical captives through Roundstone, <laughs> you know, I'm picturing you on the corner, you know, waving the flag, knowing the efficacy that this has. And now, and we can talk about this later, you know, with, with 20 years of data to support, you know, material savings for, for hundreds of thousands of people that you've been able to work with. Why is it that in the industry, you know, Roundstone and, and this whole model seems to be a well-kept secret. You know, why, why don't more people know about group medical captives and, and what, what's your opinion for what's prevented the, the broader adoption here? That's a great question. I don't know. I ask myself that a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, why is it not more um, viral? I think, you know, it, it, it is still new. There is, you know, a history or a belief that you know, people have an experience with self-insurance prior to the captive solution that was not good. And so they just assume that nothing's changed and, and they don't take the time to learn that, oh, there are some new innovations that make self-funding more approachable or more reasonable for the middle market. That's part of it. So it's sort of like, hey, we had a bad experience with self-funding before. It can't be any better without stopping to say, I wonder if things have gotten better, if there's been innovations that make it better. The other thing is um, health insurance is sold by intermediaries and brokers, and they have done exceptionally well in the old environment. Costs have gone up. Their income has gone up as a percentage of those costs, and they have uh, very little incentive for things to change. And, and if, I, if you step back from the health insurance or health care ecosystem even broader, that misaligned incentives is usually at the root cause of why things don't change. And I think the adoption of self-insurance by the middle market with the innovation of the captive has been slower than you might seem to think, primarily because of misaligned incentives. It's in the best interest of the employer and employee to manage quality, affordable health care for their company. It's not always in the best interest of the intermediary to do so. It's certainly not interested in the best interest of the traditional insurance company to do so. The providers, they're, they're kind of disconnected from it as well. 
And so there's not everybody rowing in the same direction. And so that when you have that kind of environment where people have their own agendas, change happens slowly. It is happening now. There's a pretty big shift towards self-funding by the middle market and our company's growing pretty dramatically. But it, to your point, why isn't it more like flip the switch and, you know, Malcolm Gladwell tipping point type of environment? It, it isn't quite there yet. So you had mentioned when, you know, the framing of, of the outcomes and offerings, things that, you know, a company could expect to experience through Roundstone, which transparency, control, stability, cost containment, profit sharing, you know, under, under those umbrellas. But even more than that, Roundstone has a, a guarantee, a, a brand promise. And, and in a lot of ways, one way to think about brand is that it ultimately, brand is a, is a promise. And I, you know, I imagine a lot of people listening in are probably familiar, you know, with Geico's 15 minutes could save you 15% or more kind of promise. But to me, it, it feels like Roundstone's promise is much more powerful here it isn't really a could, it's, it's a guarantee. So for one, you know, what, what exactly is that guarantee and, and building on it? If, if something sounds too good to be true, I think it's often worth trying to understand how it, how it actually works. And so if you were of the belief that it sounds too good to be true, what, what, are, what would people be missing about it? Yeah, so we, we did, we, we started offering a guarantee to um, kind of overcome that idea that, hey, this just sounds too good to be true. This just can't be real. And our guarantee is that if you um, are with us for five years, because this really is a, an approach that is a long-term approach, we will guarantee you will save money over your other options or we'll make up the difference. And that's how confident, that's what our experience has shown is that an employer that self-funds for with us over five years, they're going to pay dramatically less than they would if they fully insured or were in a product other than a self-funded captive. Why that is, is because there's that much waste, there's that much profit in the traditional insurance market that the employer is able to retain. You know, if, if you want one independent objective measure of that, Go and look over the last five years of the earnings of the big health insurance companies, United Healthcare's, the Blue Cross, the Aetna's, the Cigna's. You will see that they are earning outsized profits, big billions of dollars, and it's only going up every year. So if that employer can retain some of that for themselves, they're going to be ahead of the game. And what's really, to me, critically important here is to not forget about the impact of all of this to the employees. Because when costs go up, a chunk of it, a big chunk of it, most often a third of those increased costs are borne by the employees. And, you know, that that's tough for our communities uh, where your raise is going to fund a healthcare cost share. That's just a really, I mean, you talk about inflation, this is devastating. And so, um, you know, when you when you look at the big picture, it becomes pretty obvious why the savings occur. It's it's really, I mean, this I should probably just make it sound like it's harder for us to do it than it is, but to save twenty percent over what you're paying fully insured when you move to our product is not hard. It's just not hard. And so to for me to say if you're with us for five years, you will save money, it's not a big deal for me to guarantee that. Hmm. 
And I, I think it's particularly interesting in the context you mentioned of the employee when you consider that, I mean, typically income is the largest determinant of, of health. And I think it's still the case that most Americans have less than, you know, say $1,000 in savings and, and most plans probably have, you know, a premium minimum of a few thousand dollars. And so when you're when your savings are less than than your deductible, you're, you're functionally un, uninsured to a to a degree. Yeah, it's. I mean, when you whether you look at how many people cannot afford a three thousand dollar deductible, you know they're basically a one one bad event away from being bankrupt. You know, I was involved with an employer that you know they gave their rate uh, their employees a three percent raise, and then their healthcare came back with a twenty, I think twenty three percent increase. And so I was running the math for the employer saying, you know, essentially you didn't give a raise to your employees because when you pass along that premium cost share of 23%, it eliminates the raise. And so when they sit down for dinner at night at the kitchen table with the family, they're made, they're taking home less money. And so if you, if you're not going to try to fix this instead of just sending that money to the fully insured carrier and, you know, then, there's ways, and again, the part of your question earlier, like, why is this not more known? That's the part that eats at me because there are ways to to not have that happen to that employee. We, we have a solution that works. We offer the guarantee. You know, I take our own company, Roundstone. Our employees for the last eight years have had 0% increase in their cost share. So every raise they've received over the last eight years has stayed with them and their income has gone up if they've been an employee of Roundstone. We can do that for employers throughout this country, but we have to reach them. We have to get to them and let them know these ideas are out there. So again, in this context, in an environment where you have these misaligned incentives uh, from you know those who would be in a position to help advise companies about you know what options might be out there, you have even potentially from the perspective of an employer, some kind of pushback, you know, whether it's the, the educational process involved to understand what this actually is and how it works, they might be confused. Knowing that Roundstone today is operating at a scale of a very large scale, right? How is it though that you actually got this started and in a place where you could begin to grow the number of, of employees that you're able to, to cover? Yeah, so we, we, like a lot of businesses, we were a problem solver. So there was probably a block of business that uh, was just going through tremendous cost increases. I think one of the first ones was um, transportation companies in the agricultural market. And it, they just, they were being confronted with, do we provide benefits or we don't? And so they were basically saying, we have an open book for bringing in a solution. And they 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 brought us in and we said we could help them and we did. They saved a lot of money and so the initial business startup was really solving problems for blocks of companies that had really not a lot of options. And then when you start solving the real difficult problems like that, you start getting opportunities with the more simple one-off deals. But uh, yeah, it was just the you, you deal with the people that were in a lot of pain and it really didn't have a we're in a bad way. And that's how it got started. And then, and then refine them. The message is a good message. I mean, most, most middle market employers want control. They want stable pricing. They want to know if it is going up, why? 
And so they just need to get comfortable that it works and that they've got a partner that's going to help them implement it, that they don't have a bunch of additional work for themselves. And we're, we're able to touch all those bases for them. So when, when we first met, you, you gave me a book called The, the Founder's Mentality, which uh, I, I've since read and, and tried to learn what I, what I can from. And, and at a high level, it, it sets its own stage with this paradox of, of growth, where growth creates complexity and complexity is then the silent killer of growth. And from there, it kind of reveals the, the founder's mentality as a way to address that exact paradox. So we, we can go into more detail on, on what that mentality consists of. But I'd love to understand, of any book you could gift, why is it that you have chosen this one to have readily available to give away at, at all times? What, what is it that resonates so strongly about it? Because I think it addresses, it answers the questions for employees, you know, why is it that this founder wants me to behave a certain way? Or what is it that this founder is doing that's different than me? Or how can I be like this founder? I want to I wanna sort of apply what, what they're trying to say or, you know, and, and, and what, what would make, what kind of behavior can I exhibit that would have me aligned with, with this founder? And so this book essentially says this is the mentality that this is the approach of our company. This is the philosophy. When we confront a, a problem or a challenge, let's look at it with this perspective. And this is our guide. So that's that's really why I, I just I think it's a really good way for the for a founder and a entrepreneur and it's in the employees of that firm to get on the same page and lock arms and work together. That's the roadmap for doing it. Hmm. The, the most salient question that it, it made me want to ask you was, and it's because it, it talks about the internal strength and the, vi- the vitality of young companies, which allowed those startups to take on larger incumbents in the first place, declines as those companies grow and succeed because you're adding process and structure, which kind of detracts from the, the personal intimacy in the earlier founding years. H- how is it that you have approach that exact problem? Because uh, I, I think it's something when you reflect on Roundstone and where you are today and where you were, I mean, the company has, has grown quite significantly. Yeah. You know, um, it's those three elements, you know, the one you got to have a, you know, a mission and they talk, they talk about an insurgent mission. And, and I think if you don't start there, if you don't have a business that really is trying to, to, to change something for the better, it's going to be tough. So you, you need that and you need to remind people all the time of what that is. And for us, that's affordable health care, quality, affordable health care for all. Uh, so you, you need to you got to have an impact. You got to do something that has meaning. You got to be relevant. And so you need that mission and you got to communicate it. The one thing, though, as you know, you talk about growth and scale and the one component of this founder's mentality is called a, a frontlines obsession. And boy, I, that's, one area, that's one of the elements that I just like so much because there tends to be companies as they get so big, there tends to be a focus. Well, this company is so big and so successful because of leadership. And, and that's, to me, that's a fallacy. You know, companies succeed because of the people on the front line, uh, the people that are taking care of the customers every day. And you need to put those folks on the pedestal. And you need to recognize that they're the ones that is making this work. And if you lose sight of that, 
the customer is really, really important, but also the people that are taking care of that customer, that front line, that's when you get a disconnect. And that's when you lose your mojo as a company. And so having that as a constant reminder that what's most important is our customers and how we are taking care of them and who is taking care of them. So you, 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 you've built Roundstone here in Cleveland and intentionally chose you know, Northeast Ohio to, to start a business. What was your, what was your reasoning for, for doing so? I think a lot of people in Cleveland are here for similar reasons. My, I'm from, I grew up here. My family's here, mom, brothers and sister. I like it. It's convenient. It's affordable. I started my family here. So it, it's the easy button in terms of where to live. It also happens to have a lot of insurance talent because of other large insurance companies here. It happens to have a populace that is well-educated and can do the tasks that we need done. So, you know, you put all that together, affordability, you know, educated populace, some experience, affordable, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a good place to start a business. Not any real downside at all to doing so. There, there's certain skill sets that maybe aren't as prevalent as others in certain markets, but we've been able to overcome that and we're overcoming it even better all the day. We're, you know, we're bringing in people from other parts of the country now for certain skills like technology that make it easier for us. So uh, that's why, and I, and I, you know, I'm a Clevelander, I'm a, I'm a Browns fan and all the, all the teams. And uh, I, I'm proud of the fact Now I, I left for 10 years. I went away to school. I worked other places. So I've kicked some tires of other locales, but this is a pretty darn good place to start a business and live and raise a family. I would do it again. When you think about the, the business of Roundstone, and I think when generally people think about insurance, it's probably not the first thing to come to mind that it's, there's, you know, it, there's technology involved. It, it feels somewhat anachronistic and, and kind of an, an older process. You had mentioned technology earlier. What is the role of technology in in this this world that that you're operating in, and specifically in in the context of of Roundstone and uh, how you think about you know the work still to be done? I, I think it's no different than any business. I mean, technology gives you efficient access to data, to detail on what's happening with your business. Technology makes routine tasks more efficient communication among departments more efficient. It allows you to scale in a, a more economical way because of those tasks being automated. It really just helps you to, technology is all to me all about communication. It just helps you relate and connect and communicate better than you can without it. Uh, so we, we're, you know, besides marketing, technology and marketing are in a head-to-head -head horse race for who's going to get the bigger investment from us every year. <laughs> I think it, it would be cool to understand it in practice a little bit what this looks like, because I, I would imagine some of the, when we talk about you know pushback you might get from a, a company considering working with Roundstone is the fear of, of how much work might be involved in, in what, what at a high level is, is running your own insurance you know, relative to what they're used to, where it's, it's essentially outsourced. Um, and you know you've mentioned a few of those those parties involved from you know the agencies and the third party administrators and the the pharmacy benefit managers and 
the the coordination of, of all these things. So, you know, soup to nuts, what does this look like for an employer? And, and when you think about what Roundstone is offering in terms of some of that cost-saving analysis as well, what, what would an employer's experience be? Yeah, you, you know, the, the employer now is receiving more information than they historically have. So, you know, at, at first blush, you might say, oh boy, this looks like a lot more work, but, but you're, not, you're not undertaking the tasks. You know, it is important to have a, a good TPA partner who's managing the payment of your claims. I know some employers say, am I going to have to write checks to doctors? And the answer is no, that's all done by the TPA. But, you know, our TPA, you have data platforms that makes it easier to understand what's happening. That's another place where technology can help out. But you do need good partners with the pharmacy benefit manager and the network and the TPA and all that. And so that's what Roundstone does. It, it, it coordinates and makes sure everybody is working together. And then after a while, it's interesting that, you know, the, those initial objections of, wow, this seems like because of all this added information you're sharing with me, this seems like more work. And then once they get over that, then they, it's funny, they become like, they want more and more information. They want, <laughs> you know, now it's not work. Now it's opportunity to better manage costs. And it's funny how like, there's like a, a, a switch that goes off when that happens. But yeah, initially it seems like, well, it's a lot easier if I just write a check every month. And it's like, yeah, but that check is getting kind of expensive, isn't it? Now you write a check, you still do that. But now with that check, you're going to get some insight into where that check is going and why. So when you think about the traditional insurance model, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as I have, have, as I have understood it, you know, the, these companies make money because they pay out less in claims than they took in premium. And they, they retain that profit and it's not passed back to the company. How is it that that Roundstone makes money? So we are paid on the stop loss, on a portion of the stop loss premium, that catastrophic insurance coverage that sits above the retained risk of the employer and the pool. Uh, we're paid uh, from those excess reinsurers for underwriting, for adjudicating the excess claims, for issuing the policies, and, and basically doing the back office insurance company work that you come to expect, you know, uh, that's how we're paid. We do not, uh, we could, but we, we do not take revenue shares from ancillary support companies like telemedicine or the pharmacy or a variety of other cost containment solutions that are available in the market that might be appropriate for our customers. We do not revenue share with them. That's intentional. One, we want to keep the, cost, the fixed costs low so that the savings stay with the employer. But two, we think there's a better alignment when we don't, that we're able to say, hey, you could really benefit from a, a diabetes management program, but we're saying so because we're letting the claim data drive that decision. We're not making that recommendation because that diabetic management firm is paying us a fee. So we think there's a better alignment with the employer in, in reaching the objection of, managing their health plan cost effectively. So as this this model more generally has gained traction in the market, have other captives come to to bear as well and and when you think about competition at this point is it mostly, you know, 
versus the the traditional way of doing it and and if not as other captives have come to to exist how does how do you think about roundstone's differentiation yeah so there's a a handful of uh, other captive stop loss providers out there you know i think less than 5 i guess technically they are captives because there's on occasion we'll we'll compete against them for an opportunity but we really view more of our competition as the traditional insurance market. Two thirds of our business is leaving a fully insured traditional, you know, Blue Cross United Healthcare name and coming into our solution. So to us, that's really more of the competition. And, and once we get a, a agent or broker advisor aware of our solution and how it works, then they start showing uh, our solution to more employers as an alternative to those fully insured solutions. And we get many more opportunities because those solutions are not working for the middle market. They're going up too high, but it's tough to get that, that broker, that agent at times to, to try something different. Uh, but yeah, so that's our competition. Our competition is the, the fully insured. The other handful of captives, in one way, they're just with us, kind of educating the market. On occasion, we'll compete against them, but it's not very often. Hmm. What, when you think about the future of healthcare in the U.S. overall, I think one of the interesting dynamics is that you know Roundstone is is bringing to the table a better solution for companies as it exists today. If if you could, you know, wave a magic wand and and design, you know, the ideal structure from scratch. I'm just curious in this hypothetical world, like what what does that look like? Well, you would have to you would step back and ask your question on every element of the solution. How can we get the interests aligned? So, let let's start with the providers. The providers are taking care of the patients, the family members, and the employees. You know, how, how do how do we get those folks aligned? So. The, the outcomes are quality and affordability. And I think the closer we can get the patients to these doctors without all these intermediaries, without the, the network, you know, without the insurance company and the broker, the, you know, and the pharmacy, the better chance of that alignment we have. So, you know, my, my solution would probably involve taking a few of these participants like the networks and getting rid of them because they're not providing a lot of value. They came about supposedly to make sure providers existed or there was enough of them that you could access. They came about because of access. And then they came about, they said, arguably because of cost, but they're not doing a good job at either one of those things. So I'd eliminate them, the provide the networks, and I'd have the members able to go to the providers directly without barriers or walls of a network. I do believe that a solution like ours is aligned. And so I would suggest that we, you know, we stick with an, a solution in which if you undergo cost containment efforts, you, you reap the benefit of those savings. I think that makes sense. I think that alignment works. And then I would make sure that the, the consultants, the brokers, the agents that are explaining these products and these solutions have compensation that is aligned with the employer's objective of managing costs down. You know, that, that can be done, you know, in a variety of ways, including getting paid as a, a, a fee, a flat fee, 
as, a, as opposed to a, a fee that goes up when costs go up. So if we just did those three things, throw the networks in the garbage can, cause the intermediaries to be aligned with the employers in their compensation, and then have a solution that rewards the employees and employees when they, when they deliver cost savings, then I think you go a long way of fixing this problem. Hmm. It, it all surrounds incentives. There's that Munger quote, show me the incentives, I'll, I'll show you the outcome. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's funny. Um, we sit back a lot and, and like when somebody asked me, time, well, what differentiates your insurance company from others? And I said, you know what? I think we're the only one when we sit down and ask ourselves a strategic question, the first consideration is what would the employer want? And, and it's like, come on, Mike, that's not a differentiator. I mean, that's so obvious that that can't be something unique. But because the incentives are so screwed up, it is a differentiator. We truly are one of the few, if only, company that makes decisions based on an outcome of the employer. And, and you know, our rationale so that, you know, you don't think we need to be canonized as saints is, is listen, we're competing against, you know, you talk about Malcolm Gladwell and his David and Goliath. We're, we're competing against our country's largest companies and some of these health insurance companies. If, if we don't do things, you know, from a point of view of like, trying to help these employers, we don't stand a chance. And so the way I look at it is, yeah, maybe I could make more money by getting paid, you know, a PBM or owning a PBM like the large insurance companies do. Or maybe I could if I, if I took revenue share from cost containment ideas. But I don't think I'm going to have as much of a value traction as if I just say, man, every one of your customers, Mike, is saving money. Uh, because you're delivering on your objective of controlling their costs. So I think we'll grow quicker this way. And I'm not worried about the fact I may be leaving some extra revenue on the table by going about this approach. So when you think about the, that, that growth trajectory and, and where Roundstone is going, what does success mean to you in that context? What does it look like for Roundstone? And ultimately, what is that impact that, that you're hoping to, to have? Well, certainly success is, is defined by the number of customers we have, by the number of employers that we insure and the employees they have. So we keep close track of that. I don't know why, but I, I like the, you know, the billion dollar premium goal. You know, if we had 1% of the employer marketplace, uh, we'd be a billion and a half dollar company. And so uh, over the next eight years, that's what our goal is. Perhaps I'm underestimating, you know, maybe 1% is too low, but, you know, we, we want to we take care of at least 5,000 employers in this country. And that's what we're going to try to do first. And then once we do that, we'll go take care of 10,000. You know, it reminds me, I was just looking, they, there was just an article uh, about the top, the largest companies in Cleveland and Progressive was the largest. And I think it has $44 billion now in premium. And when I was in the PNC market, I had some folks, some colleagues that worked at Progressive. They recall a meeting in which that leader, uh, Peter Lewis, you know, when he took over that company, it was a couple hundred million dollars. And, and he told his team that they were going to become a $4 billion company. And the, the people that attended that meeting, who I knew several of them, told me they thought he was crazy. They thought 
oh my gosh, this guy has lost his mind. But now you look, and if you would have asked him the question you just asked me, what did he feel that progressive could grow in their idea that you know they could have a non-standard auto insurer? And he, he would have told you four billion. And now today he's forty-four billion. He's passed on, but his company is. And and so I'm, you know, the way I look at it is, yeah, today I say I want to, we we want to be a billion and a half dollars in the next eight years. We want to have five thousand customers. But let's fast forward thirty years. There's no reason why we couldn't be sitting on a, a multi, you know, fifty billion dollar company. The, the marketplace is there. That's not even. 10% of the marketplace. Hmm. I think one of the other ideas I wanted to explore with you, and it it, it also stems back to, to the founder's mentality, but is generally the this idea of, of culture. And you know, if you are to to build and, and grow an organization like that to, to that scale, the the culture is is something that that is kind of critically important. How, how is it that you think about culture at, at Roundstone? So we so we have our mission and we we articulate and preach that mission of quality so everyone knows what is the goal, what we're working for. And then we have core values that we publicize and we live by. And, you know, for us, we have four of them. And, you know, one is what we call live well, you know, take care of yourself and bring a positive energy. Another one is um, productivity or get things done. And another one is um, own it. Accountability. If you make a mistake, you know, own it. And then um, the last one is always be learning or intellectual curiosity. So those are not something that just goes on a, a wall somewhere in the building. We talk about it. Uh, the, the reviews reference it for every employee. And what I love about it is when we're going off track or things doesn't seem to be working or there's a conflict or disconnect, you usually can point to at least one and probably two of these values that are not present in the exchange. And so culture is where everybody is aware of those values. Everybody understands that they should be trying to live those values. And that to me is what culture is about. You know, that once that seeps in throughout, then hey, at Roundstone, we believe you've got to take care of yourself. We believe you need to learn all the time. And uh, we believe that mistakes happen, but you need to own it. You gotta be accountable. And then lastly, we got to get things done. <laughs> you got to be productive. <laughs> if if you fast forward, you know, a few years into the future and kind of track relative to to that goal, you know, 5,000 companies. If Roundstone hasn't achieved the the kind of progress that you're hoping to, what are the the things that you think have have gone wrong and and what, you know, what are the biggest challenges you think the business faces and and how how are you approaching those? You know, building out leadership is to me our biggest challenge building out uh, training d- employee development uh, those are those are the two leadership development and employee development we, we're getting great employees we have great employees but you got to constantly be learning training if we th- th- those two things and then I guess the third one I would tell you is if we swing and miss on the technology we have to do a good job on technology. And, you know, we're investing a lot in people and and systems. But, you know, I guess, you know, the thing that causes me pause is I really want my team, both my executive leadership team and the leadership throughout the organization, 
I want I want them to be, you know, better than me. So I, I want them to to use the systems we have better than I do. And so it somewhat causes me pause when I'll go to a meeting and interact with folks and then I'll hear this is the best meeting we've ever had. Things got cleared up, but I really don't want to hear that because it's not good that I need to to go to a meeting to get something back on track and actually outperform what has been happening. I want my managers and my leadership to be doing a, a great job. Won't it be a great day where I go to the meeting and they tell me never come back again? <laughs> that will be a wonderful day. So that's, that's to me is employee development. We're investing on training, leadership development, and then making sure we don't miss the ball on uh, technology. I was recently introduced to uh, this idea of a, a sliding door moment, which I think references a, a 90s movie and refers to this like parallel divergent storylines that happen based on whether or not the protagonist catches or misses this particular train. And I, I, the, I, the concept is interesting to me and, and thinking about you know those critical moments in or decisions in life that had the potential to significantly alter the course of your future. I'm curious, you know, thinking back on your own journey, if you could recall any of those sliding door moments where, where something seemingly small led to a significant outcome, you know, whether in the, in the context of, of Roundstone or, or your life. You know, later on in uh, where you do a lot of testing to say, what's your personality like? You know, I've come to understand myself a lot better and why I did certain things. But I just remember when I was in, I went to law school and I was working in a law firm and I would ask our clients who owned businesses a lot of questions and, you know, a lot of why and what I, I, without really understanding it, I was really kind of doing research on becoming a founder and an entrepreneur without really knowing that's what I was doing. And then uh, one time I was actually working at an insurance company in Florida and that founder was incredibly successful. And I was sharing with some folks about how successful he was and how cool it was that he actually had bought a part of a major league baseball team and, you know, how neat that was. And, and they said to me, why don't you do that? What's stopping you from doing that? And it was kind of an aha moment. I never looked at myself in the perspective of I could be a founder. I could be an entrepreneur. And so I think it uh, sitting there reflecting to say, you know what? why don't I try to do something like that? Now, I didn't immediately go out the next day. I actually didn't do it for several years. That, you know, that was probably five or more years later. But I do recall that moment saying where someone said to me, if you want to do that, you need, you need to try to do that. And uh, that, that, was, that was big. Now, I look back and I look at those personality tests and it was like, Dude, if you didn't become an entrepreneur, you'd have been in big trouble because this is what you were meant to do. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Thank you for, for sharing that. W what advice would you offer up to, to other entrepreneurs? You know, I would say don't, don't take shortcuts on the fundamentals. So you, what I mean by that is being an entrepreneur is not an excuse for not learning or not working for a, another company you know, you have to have a good foundation of the basic business principles of some experience 
you know, I find it, I've been volunteering or, you know, with my alma mater at Tulane and they have a great business school and they have a great entrepreneurial program there. And there's stories of students who come up with these business ideas and literally sell them, you know, before they even graduate for astronomical amounts. And, and that's pretty cool, but it kind of runs counter. Like if you're going to really build a long-term business, I would tell you, get that foundation, get some experience working for other folks, and then don't lose sight of your, of the mission, you know, make sure you understand what your company's mission is going to be because that becomes so critical. I, I just see a lot of times people go the entrepreneurial route because they, they view it as a, a shortcut or a end around these foundational tools you need. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't agree with that. I, I, I think you, you need to be able to read a financial statement. <laughs> I mean, you, you need to know what marketing is or how to do it, you know, or at least know where to hire. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I laugh only because it, it, thinking about entrepreneurship as a shortcut is, is pretty funny to me knowing how, yeah. <laughs> how difficult it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, those ones that think it's a shortcut are usually the ones that don't last very long. Yeah. Well, I think we, we've covered a, a lot of, of ground here, uh, you know, kind of placing Roundstone in, in its history and your journey and, and its, its place in, in the market. I know that there is a lot more depth that, you know, we could, we could speak to about, you know, the nature of, of how it works and, and the product and, and that. And I, I don't know if it, it makes sense to really do that deep dive, but, but I am curious of the things that we have talked about, is there anything that we've missed that you think is particularly important to explain about Roundstone or, or the journey and, and the company so far that, that we haven't yet? We've had a track record when the marketplace is not doing something well, we do it. We bring it in-house. And I think that's turned out to be a pretty good strategy. Mm. And so as an example, when we first did our first stop loss captive, the underwriting was being performed by an, an insurance company. And they weren't doing a good job with it. We'd get proposals late. The proposals had errors. And so we brought that underwriting function in-house. And we manage and develop and train our own underwriters. Similarly, with claims administration, third-party administration, we were just not getting great service from the marketplace that a lot of the TPAs didn't want employers that had less than 100 employees. And so we formed our own TPA and started doing it and have you know, better service guarantees and service levels. And we can do employers that have only 25 employees. And so the one thing I think that has worked well for Roundstone is as you're moving through the marketplace, if you see things that are not working, do them yourself better. Hmm. And, you know, it ends up being like, wow, that's innovative. Well, it's, it's not. It's survival. <laughs> it's just doing a better job for your customers. You know, why did you start a TPA? Well, we want to take care of our customers. Well, why, why did you take the expense of becoming an underwriter and having to hire all those underwriters and an underwriting system and all that, when you could have just continued to outsource that to a third party? Well, because we felt we could do a better job, and we are, and we have. And so I would tell anybody with when it comes to Roundstone or business, keep an eye on what the marketplace is not doing well, and then do it yourself. That's awesome. Well, uh, we can bookend the, the conversation here with uh, our traditional closing question, which is nothing to do with insurance <laughs> or Roundstone, but it, it does have something to do with with Cleveland, which is for uh, a hidden gem 
something in, in the area that uh, other folks may not know about, but perhaps they should. Oh, wow. That's a, a hidden gem of Cleveland. So, <laughs> boy, there's, there's so many. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the lake. I just love the lake, but I'm not, that's not, but there's a lot of access to the lake that people don't know, whether it's the rivers like Rocky River and the, the steelhead fishing that takes place in that river, uh, whether it's Huntington Beach and the beautiful beach out in Bay Village in Huntington, and I'm a West Sider, you can tell, but all the different access to the, to the water, you know, Rocky River Park and the grilling and picnic area they have there on a beautiful day. Hmm. There's not, I mean, wherever you are in your life, there's some fun activity connected to our water. And even if it's just, there's a great ice cream shop out at Huntington beach and I, and just to go get an ice cream cone and sit and look at a sunset or take a walk. I mean, you know, one story I always laugh at is I, I married a, a lady from uh, the East side and right when she moved here to the West side, she invited her friends to um, come over and, and have a picnic at the lake. And being from uh, Shaker Heights, and the, they have lots of what they call lakes. I would call them ponds, but they call them <laughs> lakes. And they asked her, which lake? And I, you know, it's just to this day, that just kind of shows you. I don't think everybody in Cleveland realizes or, you know, how fantastic this body of water I mean, Edgewater Park. I mean, that place is incredible. How fabulous it is. And and I would encourage you, no matter what you like, you, may, you like to kite surf, we'll go kite surfing at Edgewater Park. It's, it's, it's pretty active there. So I don't know how you say a great lake is a hidden gem, but to me, I think it is. <laughs> I think that's a perfect one. Well, Mike, I just want to thank you again for for coming on and, and sharing your story. I think the work that that you're doing at Roundstone is is particularly impactful and important, and it's been uh, for me really cool to to learn about it and see what it looks like in practice. And I'm glad that uh, we can we can share the word. Well, it was nice to uh, chat with you, Jeff, and I'm glad you're a transplanted Clevelander, and I hope you are enjoying the the hospitality of the Big CLE. <laughs> oh, very much. If, if people had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? Uh, just type in Mike Schroeder Roundstone and, you know, I'll come up and my email and number and all that, or go to our website, roundstoneinsurance.com. But if you type in my name and insurance or Roundstone and all that, I'll come up. Awesome. Well, thank you again. All right. Bye-bye. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. 
At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.